I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I'm excited to be teaming up with Lexus GX and Sirius XM on some very special 99PI episodes. We're heading to some of the cities in the U.S. that have special meaning for me and exploring the ways that these cities marry form and function. To learn more about the Lexus GX and Sirius XM and Lexus vehicles, visit Lexus.com slash GX and SiriusXM.com slash Lexus trial. The all-new Lexus GX. Live up to it. Check out the 99% Invisible feed now and listen to these special episodes ebay motors is here for the ride elbow grease and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own led headlights spoilers whatever you need ebay motors has it at affordable prices and with ebay guaranteed fit it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com eligible items only exclusions apply Today's show is brought to you by Bowery Boys Walking Tours, our first ever small group walking tours that are developed around our podcast. Check out our newest tours that include Edith Wharton's New York, which, by the way, takes place in Greenwich Village, the new Central Park History and Landscape Tour, the Cast Iron Architecture of Ladies Mile, and Murder and Mayhem in 19th Century NoHo, along with our Broadway Walking Tour. Book a walk today at Bowery Boys Walks. The Bowery Boys episode 287, Greenwich Village in the 1960s. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. This month, we're marking the 50th anniversary of the Greenwich Village Historic District designation from the spring of 1969, preserving one of the most important and historic neighborhoods in New York. Right, and we thought we would celebrate and mark this big anniversary by diving in a little bit deeper and exploring the scene in Greenwich Village as it was in 1969 and really throughout the 1960s. The village in the 1960s is the stuff of legends here. It's it's hotbed of musicians, artists, intellectuals, activists. They all helped define American culture and counterculture. So this, what we are about to attempt, will be a little walk through the history, giving you the flavor of the village during this era and an ample sampling of the sights and sounds. And there will be mandolins, Greg. <laughs> mandolins and bongos. <laughs> Lots of bongos and some guitars. Really, you know, anything with strings. And we did a show a little bit like this about a year ago called Times Square in the 70s. So today, similarly, we're, we're just going to be narrowing our focus on Greenwich Village and even a little bit tighter in around Washington Square Park and in the blocks surrounding Washington Square Park in the 1960s. But don't scold us if we happen to wander off onto a tangent or two. I mean, we had such a fun time studying this subject, and obviously we could devote 10 episodes to Greenwich Village. But with all of that, we're still going to leave a little room for the very unique preservation battle surrounding the fate of Greenwich Village at this time. Walk around the village today. You are walking around a village that is in many ways like the village from the 1960s that we're about to describe. So how did that survive? Well, we'll be sitting down with Andrew Berman, who is the executive director of Village Preservation, to learn about how Greenwich Village was effectively saved. 
So grab your sandals, your berets, <laughs> and, your, and your guitar, and strum along as we take a trip to Greenwich Village in the 1960s. Well, early in the morning, about the break of day, I asked the Lord, help me find the way, help me find the way, to the promised land, this lonely body, needs a helping hand. That, of course, was Peter, Paul, and Mary, Early in the Morning, a classic song by an iconic trio who are going to make an appearance later in the show. That's actually one of their more upbeat numbers. <laughs> so how, are, how exactly are you going to situate the show here? Because I think most people know where Greenwich Village is. Yeah, well, we'll start with just the, the, the basic borders here in the city. Greenwich Village is a neighborhood that is between 14th Street to the north, Houston Street to the south, Broadway to the east, and the Hudson River to the west. The, the neighborhood has been defined a little bit differently over the years, and it doesn't even account for today's East Village. Well, the East Village was more a part of the Lower East Side. And in fact, for our show today, the name East Village was just coming into parlance. And so no one really called it really the East Village before the 1960s. And although we're sticking really to the 1960s as as best we can today, yeah. mm -hmm. we should just point out that Greenwich Village was an actual village way back when. It was the village of Greenwich. <laughs> yeah, over 200 years ago. Can you, isn't that's amazing to believe that it was indeed a separate village from the city of New York, which was farther south on the island of Manhattan. The area that we're calling Central Village here locks into the Manhattan street grid of numbered streets and avenues. The West Village, mm -hmm. which is also part of Greenwich Village, mostly retains the old street grid of the olden village days. I mean, you can tell when you're in the West Village because all, all of a sudden the streets are going wonky. So, in generally speaking, that would be west of 6th Avenue. But Washington Square Park is very much the center of the central village. Washington Square is an old pauper's ground that then became a military parade ground in the 1830s. Then, north of the park, that area became the center of society and wealth. Literally, the birth of Fifth Avenue. Like, Fifth Avenue springs from Washington Square Park. And we have a great show on that called The Rise of Fifth Avenue Mansions from about a, a year and a half ago. So... As a result, there is a lot of beautiful early 19th century, mid 19th century architecture north of the park. Now, Tom, we have another show that we recently recorded on Walt Whitman, where we talked about a place that he frequented in the 1850s. The Bohemian Bar, Foffs with a P. Yeah. Over on Broadway around Bleecker Street. Yes, so can you believe, this? that was the 1850s, that there's already a whiff of the bohemian lifestyle here in the village. And by bohemian, you don't mean like Czech Republic. You're, no. talking, you're talking about like avant-garde artists, artists and, and yes. writers. Yes, but even more so like an area that has a certain acceptance of foreign cultures, people of alternative lifestyles, essentially the seat of countercultural ideas here in New York. But jumping ahead like a century to mm -hmm. the 1950s and the 1960s, you're saying that there's like a century of 
counterculture in this entire neighborhood? I mean, it's extraordinary. It's been the home for a kind of alternative New York for over a century. And I think that today we will even argue that the 1960s would perhaps be Greenwich Village's most influential decade, just in terms of uh, a national profile, the national conversation about these topics. But even here in the 1960s, it still feels like a village. It feels kind of old fashioned because a lot of the buildings still date back from the 19th century. Mm -hmm. So there's still and these are lower structures. The city might be growing quickly, very modern around it. But the village is still almost like it's stuck in a time war. Mm -hmm. So take us there. Where are we going to start this tour? Well, imagine this. We're going to Washington Square Park in the early 1960s, like 61, 62. Let's say you're like an out-of-towner. Okay. You've never been here. And so like you've, you've heard about Washington Square. You've heard about Greenwich Village. But you're going to experience it for the first time. And you're coming in. Maybe I even call it Greenwich Village. <laughs> Maybe you're mispronouncing Where am I from? Um, well, that's up to you. What avatar would you like to, to select for I'm this? I'm from Ohio. <laughs> okay. Yeah. The Bronx is up. The battery's down. All right. And you're coming in town from, from the city bus, of course. And it's it's the middle of April. And, and, and spring is upon us. <laughs> yes. We love Washington Square Park in the spring. Now, did you know that before 1962... That the bus that is taking you down to Washington Square Park would have actually pulled into the park itself. Today, it's, of course, pedestrian only. But before then, buses actually passed through the Washington Square Arch to turn around and then to go back up Fifth Avenue. So in essence, amazing. It, it would have dropped you off within the park. Yeah, you see these old photos. We, sometimes the, the buses are parked right there north of the mm -hmm. fountain. <laughs> So, so I so I get off this bus next to the fountain and I'm looking around. What do I see? Yeah, what do I hear? It's a dizzying experience of sights and sounds and some smells. Mm. I mean, you know, this what you're seeing, believe it or not, is Greenwich Village, the capital of American counterculture. Uh, the center of activity, no surprise, is around that fountain basin that, you know, the bus is turning around on. During the week, the fountain's on, and there's, like, children and animals playing in the water. But this is a Sunday. But this is a Sunday, and so there's no water, and instead it's, a, it's an amphitheater of sorts. Wow, you know, Greg, this sounds so much like Washington Square Park. Like, <laughs> the park that we know. Oh, you mean like t of today? Like mean. the one we walked through yesterday. Well, there's a lot of uh, a lot of continuity with the things that took place 50, 60 years ago. But but I am seeing something different. I'm seeing a bunch of people with guitars hanging out together. Oh yeah, there's bongos, mandolins, zithers, guitars. There is of course in the air cigarette smoke and marijuana. People are smoking that if they can get away with it. A really diverse set of individuals in one place, at least for New York in the early 1960s. But to be clear, although it seems like a timeless place and a, a sort of an oasis here, there are actually a lot of changes happening in the village at the time. Yeah, there's actually construction. I see south of the park over on the east side, I see some cranes and things. Yeah, there's a, a massive 
construction project that will that will last most of the 1960s. Hundreds of buildings were demolished to construct the apartment towers known as University Village, and this would eventually open in 1967. So as a as a result, there's a lot of upheaval happening actually on the east side of the park. That's that's kind of a downer. Yeah, oh, yeah. But let's not let urban renewal interrupt our fantasy here. All right. Okay. That was just a sidestep. But turning away from that, I mean, there are hundreds of people, many of them making music around us. Who are these people? Well, believe it or not, many of them are tourists. This is one way that the 1960s in the village is different from the 1950s. This is now an area of national interest. Imagine a place today in New York where you had the hottest recording artists, the most talked about painters, and the most controversial writers all hanging out within just a few blocks away from each other. In, in places where you could actually visit. Yeah, I mean, that were open to the public. To quote the author John Straussbaugh, who wrote the brilliant history of the village called The Village, quote, Well into the 1950s, the art scene in and around the village remained small and isolated. Everyone knew everyone else. Painters, poets, playwrights, musicians, filmmakers, composers, and dancers worked together, played together, drank together, lived together, slept together, and inspired one another. So it really was a village, a creative village. In the 50s. Oh. But innocence, we could say, was lost by the 1960s. You now had, I mean, the Beat Generation, whose members lived here, the Abstract Expressionists, the jazz and folk artists were now the most exciting artists in America, not just in New York, not just locally, and if not in the world, actually. And so, like everything else in New York City, this becomes a tourist attraction. But here, during the 1960s, many of those people, many of those artists would stick around the village, right? Yes, for a, for a while. And, and many of the new people who were coming in as tourists, perhaps, or moving to New York would become a creative force here in the village as well. Right. They were all essentially looking for stardom. But let's not forget uh-huh. that this is also a, a de facto campus of New York University, or rather the undergraduate program of NYU, because until the early 70s, actually, graduate students were actually up at their Bronx campus, which they sold Uh, out in the following decade. But we also have new school students who sometimes get overlooked in this story. There's There's hundreds of them as well. With a campus here in Greenwich Village. Right. You had members of art groups, political groups who were congregating here in the park and and surrounding streets. Then you have the neighborhood residents themselves, the old timers of the neighborhood, who most of them were Italian. Because the blocks south of the park Mm -hmm. and and west of the park were also uh, an Italian enclave. Right. The South Village, as it's sometimes called, well, in the late 19th century, it had been a thriving African-American community. But then those families moved out at the start of the 20th century and then were replaced by first-generation, second-generation Italian immigrants. By 1905, 
this was the largest ethnic group in the neighborhood. Although by the 1950s, so sort of at the start of our story, the Italian presence in Greenwich Village is starting to decline. Although many Italian shops and restaurants would hang on and some of them would even transition into bohemian spots. So you're painting an area that's actually in transition here. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I can't help but think that there'd be some tension as these populations are shifting from old-fashioned, traditional Italian neighborhood to Mm -hmm. bohemian, younger, beatniks, etc. Are you saying that there is a whiff of gentrification here alongside the cigarette smoke? (laughs) There's a lot to whiff, yes. All right, well, that is an extremely fair point. But back to our guy who's getting off the bus here. Yeah, yeah, from Ohio. Uh-huh. Right. What um what am I going to do? Where do I go? Well, what are you interested in? Well, I like I've heard that there's an art scene down here. Oh, yeah. I mean, in fact, when you get off the bus, you are amazed to see different people with easels and you know photographers throughout the park with fancy new SLR cameras that, or just even simple click and shoots that everyone's a budding photographer or artist here in the park you've heard that of course that Greenwich Village is the center of art creation even though there's a more lucrative gallery scene that's developing uptown this is sort of the center of art creation yeah I see people literally painting portraits right there it, it has a very festive air <laughs> just up on 8th street is the studio school um in a building that was the former home of the whitney museum a who's who of iconic artists are still living and working in the village i feel like i could bump into a bunch of artists around here oh yeah i mean like for the great edward hopper for instance is actually still working in a studio up at three washington square north And if your timing was really good when you got off the bus there, you would go just north of the park to visit the village's one of the biggest occasions here, a biannual outdoor art exhibit, which began back in 1932 and essentially helped create some of the major names in art in the mid 20th century. And and this was a biennial outdoor art market. Yeah. That was open to anybody? Could anyone just arrive with their canvases? Well, when it started in the 1930s, you absolutely could, if you could just find a space for it. But here by the 1960s, it was so renowned. There were so many painters that you, yeah, you had to register. But uh, here I am off the bus, and it's not during one of those biennial art shows. No, so no. <laughs> so where else where else can we go? Well, you know, it, 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 what are you interested in, Tom? Are you interested in dance or acting? There are many venues throughout the village and displaying exciting new styles of performance, which you'll get to. Are you a writer or a poet or an admirer of, of writers and poets? I don't know what I am. <laughs> of course, you could go ensconce yourself in a local coffee house, but you would also find many great bookstores around here. In fact, there's one up on 8th Street at 8th Street and McDougal, the 8th Street Bookshop, which was a hangout of all the major beat poet superstars who were there. I mean, are you, are you getting a sense that there's just such an overwhelming amount of creativity and culture here? <laughs> there is. There's so much going on. By the way, the 8th Street Bookstore, today it's the Stumptown Coffee. Oh, uh, well, you know. I mean, they still got... You know, it's like kind of it's gone from a bookstore to a coffee house. But if you don't even want to go into a bookstore, you can just hang out here at the park and some of the major beat poets would hold court here and read some of their work to hundreds of enwrapped audience members. Wow, this sounds 
suddenly like a very intense and focused <laughs> scene. Mm-hmm. Imagine the concentration you might need if you went down to the southwest corner of the park to play a little chess, right? The southwest corner has been the destination for outdoor chess and chess tournaments since around this period. In fact, in the 1950s, young Bobby Fischer... America's most famous chess player would play here at these tables. And those tables had been there for decades. Oh yeah, from the from the LaGuardia period, but it be- became a major chess destination starting in the 50s. In fact, a chestination. <laughs> a ch- a chestination. Um, in fact, it would re- uh, inspire several chess venues in the area, including the famous Village Chess Store, which was at 3rd and Thompson. But we're beating around the bush here, the bushes of Washington Square Park, the one pervasive element of the village, the cornerstone of life in Washington Square Park in the early 1960s, is a tradition that still lives on in some form today, and that is, of course, public music performance, and in particular, folk music. Which brings us back to the mandolins and the guitars and the tambourines. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And that has really been the, the biggest thing that you've noticed, right? Once you stepped off that bus is that there are people making music throughout the park. Yeah, everywhere. I mean, mostly around the fountain and over to the west side, but you can find it pretty much everywhere. Now, let's focus specifically on the folk music scene because it is kind of at its height here in the early 60s. Folk music is essentially like core American music. It's sort of fundamental to American music in the same way that like blues is, which, you know, folk gave us country music as a genre, for instance. And folk did not originate in the 1960s. Oh, it's much, much older. However, it was revived a little bit after World War II, but as a sound of progressive bohemian culture, which might be kind of surprising if you think about it. The stars of folk music would become the kind of alternative music stars of the day uh, by the late 1950s. You know, folk would be to Greenwich Village what country music is to Nashville or soul music is to Philly or Detroit. Plus, on top of that happening, New York had all these major music labels like Columbia Records, which would end up scouring the village for brand new acts. And we're going to head into some coffee houses and some bars and clubs and hear a little bit of folk music in a few minutes. But let's just say that, you know, it is the transportability of folk, the fact that you just need an instrument. You don't you don't even need to plug it in for the most part. It's so easy. You can play it anywhere. Yeah. Um, you don't really need a big stage or a big setup that helped it flourish in outdoor spaces like this park yeah. and in any number of hole-in-the-wall little bars and clubs. <laughs> well, I mean, you don't even need a good singing voice. You basically just need a heart, essentially, because it's very passionate music. So they started... So a tradition began around the end of World War II of musicians gathering here at the park to play. Hundreds, in fact, would gather on Sundays, especially. It was a brilliant place for talented young musicians to get discovered, and um, an amazing mix of more established acts. You may actually see like like a, f- a famous folk artist like Pete Seeger or Janice Ian mixing with people who just got off the bus. And what were these big outdoor happenings, these big concerts called? Well, they were called Hootenannies. Hootenannies? <laughs> Hootenannies. Thousands of people congregating without a permit 
on a Sunday afternoon. Sounds like that could lead to some problems. Uh, well, yeah, especially because this is New York in the early 1960s, which is not exactly known for like a fun time. There were huge efforts in New York to clean up the riffraff. They couldn't have wandering troubadours, beatniks, and communists. With, Plus, you know, they were so unshaven. They weren't wearing, yeah. you know, uniforms. And you certainly couldn't have them within earshot of children playing in a park. So, naturally, the city attempted to shut down the music in Greenwich Village in 1961. First of all, for requiring permits for performing, then limiting those permits, and then cutting them off entirely. Well, that's obviously not going to work. <laughs> no. On April 9th, 1961, hundreds of people arrived. I mean, this is already a place of protest, and now you're trying to take away the music. Hundreds of people protested in the park, an event that would later be called the Beatnik Riot. <laughs> From the Daily News uh, the following day on April 10th, headline, Park Songfest and Village Boils into Slugfest. Quote, Embattled beatnik musicians, joined by friends and veteran anti-cop shouters, turned peaceful Washington Square Park into a wrestling ring yesterday afternoon in the defense of free speech for zither players, mandolin strummers, and folk singers. In a series of scuffles for control of the park's huge fountain, the cops shunted seven belligerent beats into the paddy wagon for a trip to the Charles Street Station. I somehow have a hard time believing that, like, there was truly a beatnik riot. A riot. Considering the riots of New York history, like, I don't think it was, like, on to the level of, like, the Civil War draft riots. Right. No. So so clearly, this whole permit system was a bust. Oh, yeah. I mean, long story short, City lost the debate. And to this day, performers can perform in Washington Square Park without a permit, although... I urge you, if you want to go down there, to, to please check New York City's official website and the website for the park, because it does depend on the time of day and the music volume. That sounds very complicated. <laughs> um, but I, I need to sit down, maybe get a refreshment. Let's, let's get out of the park. Before going to any places, stop in a newsstand and pick up this little publication called The Village Voice. Oh. Now, The Village Voice would uh, begin operation in 1955. This was an alternative weekly back in the day when there just weren't that many in the world uh, that would spend the 1960s here headquartered in offices at 7th Avenue and Christopher Street. Uh, so, so right next to Christopher Park. Their offices were just a few buildings over from a little bar that we'll talk about in a second called the Stonewall Inn. So anyway, so now you have your village voice. It's going to help you navigate the extraordinary Greenwich Village scene here. So I've got my village voice, but, uh, you know, another thing that we could do for our listeners now is actually play for them a fabulous little short film uh, that, that was made in 1960. This was called Greenwich Village Sunday, and it really captures the moment of Greenwich Village on a Sunday afternoon in 1960. Kind of tells the story of a young woman who's drifting around the village 
Um, she's hanging out in a music circle here mm-hmm. in the park. Uh, she gets her portrait painted at an outdoor art market, and she kind of <laughs> meanders around, passing coffee shops and theaters and studios. From Bocha to Burlesque. You can find just about anything in Greenwich Village. The village is the birthplace of American repertory and the home of the vital and thriving off-Broadway theater. There are dozens of intimate holes in the wall where you can listen to jazz, beat poetry, or to the bubbling of espresso machines. For those who search them out, there are secret treasures and hidden gardens to be found all over the village. The film was made and narrated by Gene Shepard, who had a late night radio show in the 1960s in which he told long stories about life in his neighborhood, Greenwich Village. Now, I don't know who was playing that flute or that pan flute. But that's, yeah. <laughs> that's some hot pan uh-huh. flute action in the background. What places do you have in store for us? Well, I'm going to steer us actually a little south of the park along McDougal in the McDougal Bleecker Street, quote, fun zone. Mm-hmm. I kept seeing it referred to as the fun zone because when you see these photos from the 60s, especially those taken at night and those taken on the weekend, the streets are absolutely packed with people, mostly young people and also tourists who are making their way from one coffee shop or cafe or gallery or performance space to the next. Or they're just like hanging out in the streets, gawking at all the street theater. Look around and you're going to notice lots of places that are actually competing to entertain you. There are these coffee houses, uh, but there are also bars and that have live acts. There are restaurants. Oh, let's head into one of these famed coffee houses. We are in the Italian section here of the village, right? Where they had had espresso bars for many, many decades. Uh, But by the 1950s, scores of newer coffee houses and cafes were operating in the streets around the park, uh, especially here along McDougal and Bleecker, that created an entire coffee house culture. Most importantly, you could sit there for hours... For the price of a cup of coffee, you could hang out with your friends or take in a performance. By the late 1950s, many of these places were also offering some kind of live entertainment. Mm -hmm. So if you went there, you might be entertained by a music act or by a poet, a comedian, some people going free form. You know, it was a mixed bag of (laughs) of offerings. And recently we touched upon this scene in our show on the history of the New York comedy scene. Comedy was part of the the types of act that you could catch down here. Um, and the TV shows we mentioned in that show, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, takes place at the Gaslight Cafe, which was a very popular coffee house at 116 McDougal. That was opened in 1958 by a man named John Mitchell. One of the innovations that Mitchell had, because he was wary of like upsetting the upstairs neighbors, was to encourage his patrons not to applaud Hmm. and make a lot of noise, but instead to snap their fingers. 
uh, which oh, so I, now I'm getting a feeling. Now I'm in my beret. Now I'm sitting here with my espresso, a uh, beat poet or or a beautiful folk ballad, and to and to show my appreciation, I'm snapping. That's that's right because you're here in a coffee house. The gaslight was actually located just next door and downstairs from a very important bar. That was called the Kettle of Fish. Hmm. The previous address of today's Kettle of Fish. And that was located here at 114 McDougal and had opened in 1950. Now, between acts downstairs at the gaslight, maybe, you, you know, you were thirsty for an actual drink. Uh-huh. So you headed up patrons, but also the, the acts themselves would head up to Kettle of Fish to have a drink. And both of these places, the Kettle of Fish and the Gaslight, would be very, very important to the folk scene. But the Kettle of Fish was a bar, whereas the Gaslight was a coffee house. And and the Gaslight was also what was considered a hat house. So you're sitting there, like you sit there for hours, right? Because it's mm-hmm. just like a steady stream of entertainers, like jazz, bebop, folk, a monologue, yep. even a comedian, and then to show your appreciation, you're snapping, but you can also drop a few coins in a floating hat. Well, it was kind of expected, yes, that yeah. you would throw some money in the hat, either after an act or when you were trying to leave. And and by the late 1950s and early 60s, there were so many coffee houses catering to the the sort of beat beatnik scene mm-hmm. that was down here. Back to uh, Strasbaugh's book, The Village, he wrote that, Quote, by 1959, the beatnik invasion of the village was in full force. The bleaker McDougal fun zone was crowded <laughs> with door-to-door coffee houses and cafes. In the summer of 1959, the Cafe Borgia, the Figaro, the Raffio, the Flamingo, the Dragon's Den, the Cock and Bowl, which would later be the bitter end, and the Take Three were all operating on bleaker, while the Rienzi, the Reggio, the Continental, Cafe Wa, the Gaslight, and the Playhouse Cafe lined McDougal and the fat black pussycat around the corner on Minetta Lane. I mean, this is this sounds so exciting because you could go into any of these venues and see people who the next day would be a major star, whether it is in music or comedy. And they didn't always get along. Into, into the 1960s, as the folk music scene was becoming bigger down here, there was even a little bit of a clash between the folkies and the beatniks. <laughs> According to Dave Van Ronk, who was a folk singer and oh, yeah. he was known as the mayor of McDougal Street. A legend, yes. Beats hated folk music. All these folkniks sitting on the floor singing about the oppressed masses. They were into bebop and, and jazz that was happening. And into like difficult, you know, uh, poetry yeah. and existentialism. Uh-huh. It was not the same as, you know, tambourine playing. <laughs> But they could share the same stage. But back to that tourist bus that just arrived in Washington Square Park. Maybe somebody was getting off who was moving to the village, getting off the bus actually with a guitar. One of the places that he or she may have headed would have been the Folklore Center, which was opened in 1957 at 110 McDougal by a young man named Izzy Young. This was like a folk music and folk community center. Uh, located right next to the Gaslight and Kettle of Fish. For all your folk needs, I guess? <laughs> for, for all kinds of folk, you know? <laughs> and what you're describing here is early 60s before things got more explicitly political. Well, actually, the scene was already pretty political. People were already pretty concerned about violence and and war 
Because don't forget that the Cuban Missile Crisis was in October of 1962. Mm. So already there was a kind of protest element and a political edge to the folk music. So we've been looking over at the Gaslight and Kettle of Fish. Turn around across the street at the corner of Mineta Lane in the basement is Cafe Wa. And that's what (laughs) W-H-A question mark. And I think we did mention that in the comedy show, too. It was a major it was a major destination to see someone funny. And and back again to Strasbaugh's book for a second. He writes in the village. Cafe Wob was an entry level spot in the afternoons, a parade of wannabe folk singers, amateur comics, weekend poets, drag queens, magicians, show tune belters and sad sack troopers of all sorts perform short sets. That is my kind of place, actually. Paradise. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) We would probably be performing there ourselves, actually. Have we been producing a podcast in the mid-1960s? And probably be categorized as a sad sack trooper. (laughs) (laughs) One other place I want to point out around the corner, going down to Bleecker and then turning right, we would come to the Village Gate, which opened in 1958. Now, it was located at 160 Bleecker Street in the old Mills House apartment building on the south side of Bleecker, and the sign is still out there today. Uh, The Village Gate, it, it gave a stage to a huge list of folk stars and rockers, Um, as well as poets and writers. Nina Simone, one of her first major concert moments was at the Village Gate. Even like off-Broadway productions were mounted there, like the review Jacques Brel is Alive and Well and Living in Paris, which opened in 1968. Then, of course, there were some places, you know, that were more focused on jazz, like the Village Vanguard, which was a club that had been around since the 1930s and had featured all kinds of music, even, even beat poetry. But by the late 50s, and then certainly into the 60s, was really more focused on jazz. So this is a landscape of performance venues. Who are some of the major figures who came out of these venues, these major musical names in folk music? Lots of folks. And obviously we can't talk about folk music in New York without mentioning Robert Allen Zimmerman. Mm -hmm. Uh, who who arrived in New York from Minnesota in January of 1961, but would change his name to Bob Dylan. The day he arrived in 1961, he headed straight for Café Wa and performed that day. Raring to go. (laughs) He was. I think he was playing a harmonica. His his career actually took off very quickly because he made lots of friends uh, in high places, really high places, (laughs) And befriended other stars, such as Joan Baez, uh, who you could also catch at any of these clubs. Uh, or, you know, Joan would also be playing away in one of these nannies in the park. Oh, sure. You could have also caught the trio Peter, Paul, and Mary, an extremely popular act uh, made up of Peter Yarrow, Mary Travers, and Noel Stuckey, who in 1962 had a top 10 popular hit with If I Had a Hammer. And If I Had a Hammer was so popular, Greg, that it actually kind of made them look down upon uh, in, oh, right. in the whole too, scene. Right. It was too big. They became too big for their folk britches. <laughs> for, for their overalls. Yes. And all this is acoustic, right? It's, it's early 60s. Yeah, things would get more plugged in in about 1965. 65 is the year that Bob Dylan went electric. <laughs> yes, with fame, a, infamously. Yes, infamously shocking the folk world. 
1965 is also the same year that the folk singers Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel, a folk group formerly known as Tom and Jerry, uh, had a hit, had their first big popular hit with The Sound of Silence, which was electric. And that December, the Mamas and the Papas released a song that they had written in the village called California Dreamin'. Dreamin' of California in the village. And that next year, in 1966, back at the Café Wa, in the summer of 66, Jimi Hendrix would be discovered performing on the electric guitar as Jimmy James. All right, you know what? This is so much music. My head is spinning from this experience. That isn't the music. (laughs) All these cramped coffee houses. Let's go back out on the street and try a new form of entertainment here. Let's head over to the limelight. Not the 80s and 90s dance club, but the photo gallery and coffee house and restaurant that was located at 7th Avenue and Barrow Street. This was opened in 1954 by Helen G., and is regarded by many as the first photo gallery in the country. You can see works by major photographers like Ouija, our favorite crime Mm -hmm. photographer, (laughs) Walker Evans, and and others. So photographers are hanging on the walls, but also hanging out here in the coffee house. And here in the limelight, also Gene Shepard, who we heard narrating that short film before, Mm -hmm. would broadcast a Saturday night radio show starting in 1964, from the Limelight Gallery. You mentioned theater earlier as being presented in the, the Village Gate. Mm-hmm. Is it also happening in coffee houses? Is it happening in these smaller spaces? Yes, it was. And we should mention that the Village has this long history of attracting the theater community, mm-hmm. right? So there's already a lot of actor types, playwrights, set designers, lighting designers. And by the 1950s, the theater scene started heating up. And that is due to the invention of Off-Broadway, which got its official start in 1949 because Actors' Equity sort of loosened up a little bit and they allowed their members, professional actors and theater people, to work on smaller, lower-budget productions around town. And can I assume being smaller stages, they were allowed to be a little bit more experimental and avant-garde in their works? Yes, and they certainly were at first. Um, in fact, one of the very first off-Broadway theaters in the neighborhood was was located in the old Cafe Society space. Uh, which in Sheridan in, Square. At Sheridan yeah. Square, which in 1950 was transformed into a theater called The Circle in the Square. And in 1958, the Sullivan Street Playhouse at 181 Sullivan opened. Two years later, in 1960, they would premiere their big hit, really their only hit, (laughs) The Fantastics, uh, which would run in that space for more than 17,000 performances until 2002. Yeah, I I believe it played for hundreds of years, (laughs) famously. Well, at least until 2002, when they they packed up their little chest, walked out onto the street, and the whole structure fell down. (laughs) It it was actually demolished and um, replaced with luxury condos. Fantastic. 
what I'm picking up here is like folk music and like many of these other art forms, these these they're becoming bigger, more prominent, uh, perhaps even famous. And so I imagine that tickets to off-Broadway shows are even more expensive by this time. Well, off-Broadway is becoming, by the 1960s, a bigger business. Yeah, so where's, I want something more avant-garde, something more experimental. And the village had had experimental theater even since the 1940s uh, with the Living Theater, which was doing experimental works. But that's true. By the 60s, Things were becoming a bigger business, and that would be corrected, if you will, <laughs> uh-huh. um, by something that sprouted up in the coffee houses, back into the coffee houses. Because in coffee houses, and then other sort of small impromptu theaters, we might call them pop up theaters uh, today. Pop up theaters, okay. Yeah, storefronts or anything else. Um, these spaces started, started actually producing edgier not nearly as commercial works, which would sort of collectively be referred to as off-off-Broadway. So these would be like the alternative to the commercial Broadway and off-Broadway business. Probably the most famous of the off-off-Broadway theater coffee houses was a place called Cafe Chino. That was located at 31 Cornelia Street and was founded by a man named Joe Chino in 1958. This was a cafe. There was like Joe was making coffee in the back, uh, selling pastries, Christmas lights. And, you know, performers at the beginning would read plays that would sort of morph into them doing their own low budget stagings of plays and then actually reading their own works. And that here and in other coffee houses would kind of morph into this new off off Hmm. Broadway. We should also add uh, there's a very interesting and unique influence here to the village and it strangely enough is in a Stanford White building that's on the southern side of Washington Square Park that old beautiful Italian Renaissance Judson Memorial Church where during this time in the 1960s the Reverend Al Carmines uh, was really embracing off-off Broadway theater he was just a force in that theater scene he was composing his own musicals he was performing He was leading the church (laughs) from an article later in the New York Times, quote, for more than a decade at the Judson Memorial Church on Washington Square, his specialty was setting to music his many enthusiasms, which included Abraham Lincoln, Christmas, homosexuality, St. Joan, and most particularly Gertrude Stein. (laughs) That's the village for you. This was not an ordinary church, needless to say. And it still flourishes today. So that is a bit of a stroll (laughs) around Greenwich Village in the 1960s. So there's so much happening here, so much that would go on to influence American culture in all varieties. But as we progress here through the 60s, the place itself goes through some shocking transformations, both to the spirit of the village and even to the physical nature of the village itself. Developers are licking their chops, looking at Washington Square Park and the many tiny streets that surround it. And in this case, it truly would take a village to save a village. The beat goes on after this. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, 
began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Elbow grease and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater. And this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Now, earlier in the show, our, our fun little setup for our walk there, we purposely set it in the early 1960s. It was something kind of precious about it, something innocent about the village mm-hmm. at that time. Well, starting around 1963 and 64, life in the village takes on a more tumultuous dimension. You know, reading old village voices from the 60s was an incredible thing. Many of these old Issues are available in their archive online. So much of what's happening in the world is reflected in the village. And so you'll see like you'll see the village voice now taking on kind of national stories, national national storylines. By the end of the decade, though, something has changed very seriously in the village. To quote from the village voice, January 9th, 1969, headline, McDougal and Bleecker. The scene that ended. Quote, it used to be the scene, an incandescent enclave of sandal makers, coffee houses, bars, and bead shops that blossomed like a brassy brigadoon along McDougal and Bleecker streets. It was where you went to find out what was happening, to be where the action was. In recent years, however, much of the action moved east to St. Mark's Place, and the scene has been left with a residue of teeny boppers and tourists. The first unmistakable signs of cultural senility had begun to appear. Wow, that took 
an unexpected and kind of dark turn. Uh, residue? Res- <laughs> there's a residue of teeny boppers around here. <laughs> yes. What happened? How did we get to this point, right? I mean, there's a there's really a lot of different reasons. One of them being, of course, that now, by this time, Greenwich Village was really, really popular and really well known. But it was also reflecting the American climate of the of the day. And as we know, in the late 1960s, things are about to get much darker and more cynical. Right, with political upheaval and the, and the war in Vietnam and assassinations. Mm-hmm. But what happened to that peppy, upbeat folk, folk music? Many of them became major recording stars. Bob Dylan, The Birds, Peter, Paul, and Mary. The Beat Poets who reigned supreme in the 1950s, most of them had left for San Francisco and other places by this time. As you mentioned, the folk scene would continue but would be replaced slowly in these venues by rock and roll, a more sexy or modern music, and of course electric guitars were affordable. So you not only had people like Jimi Hendrix, but you had more and more wannabes entering the coffee houses. Fashion-wise, let's just say it went from the beatnik to the hippie, the drugs changed in the village as well. The culture changed. Psychedelic drugs were now inspiring musicians like the Velvet Underground, who are a world away from artists like Peter, Paul, and Mary. More seriously, there was heroin that was now becoming a bigger problem in the village. Starting in the 1950s, many of these churches, including Judson Memorial, would get involved with uh, major rehabilitation efforts. But you said by the late 60s, the village is actually becoming more touristy. Where did the artists go? Well, many of them were going to cheaper tenements over in that area around Tompkins Square Park, an area of the Lower East Side that would be rebranded in the 1960s as the East Village. Meanwhile, some of those artists that had a little bit more money would actually just move downtown a few blocks to a neighborhood that would, of course, be known as Soho. And by the way, we've done shows on both St. Mark's and Soho Yes, <laughs> for more on those subjects. But even with these artists moving out, there are still a ton of people coming in to visit yeah. this neighborhood. Well, because what the village still had was its reputation. It had its symbolism, actually, as an outpost of protest and a place for progressive movements to develop, even though the reality was it was developing in even more neighborhoods, but they were just not neighborhoods that were as as popular with tourists or as well or as known to people. So there was still a spirit of protest and activism. Yeah, I mean, to this day, the village and Washington Square Park is a site of protests, vigils, and gatherings for national tragedies. And this was true in the 1960s. Like, it was, it became deeply associated with protesting. Especially here in the 1960s with things like the civil rights movement and protests against the war in Vietnam. Greenwich Village is really associated with the American anti-war movement in the late 60s. In fact, right off of Washington Square on 4th Street, the Washington Square United Methodist Church would function as the Greenwich Village Peace Center and would lead the village anti-war movement during this period. Uh, There were constant protests in the streets around the village and throughout the city. So even if the scene and the artists are moving out of the neighborhood, there's still this, this spirit of activism that is 
firmly planted yeah. in the village. I would even say that the soul of Greenwich Village at this point is being refined in these particular years, right? As perhaps less a destination for art and more a destination for protest and progressive politics. And nothing embodies this change more than the work of gay rights organizations like the Mattachine Society and the Daughters of Bilitis, who were here located in the village fighting to improve the lives of gays and lesbians. Their work and a series of events would culminate in the Stonewall Riots, an altercation in the early morning hours of June 28, 1969, between police and the clientele at the Stonewall Inn at Christopher Street and 7th Avenue, a few doors down from the Village Voice. So that's in June of 1969, just a couple months after the historic designation of the neighborhood. Now, the reason that that is also important is because if you go there today, and many of you obviously have been to the Stonewall, you've looked around Christopher Park, around Sheridan Square, you've walked around the village, you've walked through the streets down McDougal and Bleecker, you'll notice a remarkable thing. Many of the streets and the parks that we've talked about here today look almost exactly like they did 50 years ago. And that is no happy coincidence or just luck. That is because of some real battles that were waged by the neighbors and the neighborhood associations against the city and against plans to develop and disrupt the neighborhood in many different ways. Because Robert Moses, by the time of our story here, and others had drawn up all kinds of projects to disrupt the neighborhood, including ramming Fifth Avenue and a highway through Washington Square Park, uh, making its way toward what was to become the Lower Manhattan Expressway, which would never happen, fortunately. And it would take activists like Margot Gale and Jane Jacobs to help preserve both the park and the neighborhood here and prevent any of the plans of Robert Moses. So to discuss how the neighborhood fought back and eventually succeeded in establishing the Greenwich Village Historic District in April of 1969. Greg and I sat down with Andrew Berman, who is the executive director of Village Preservation, formerly the Greenwich Village Society for Historic Preservation, to talk about that hard-won battle. Okay, so we have the great pleasure now of sitting with Andrew Berman, who's the executive director of Village Preservation, uh, the new name for the Greenwich Village Society of Historic Preservation. And we're sitting in their nice fancy offices right next to St. Mark's in the Bowery. So we are are just feet away from Peter Stuyvesant himself, actually. And just feet away from Andrew. Hi, Andrew. Welcome. Hey, how are you? Great. So we've been, Greg and I have been talking um, about Greenwich Village in the 60s and all of the exciting, you know, scenes and the music and the theater and the activism. All of this is happening, though, in the city's streets in and outside of neighborhood buildings and in Washington Square Park, of course, many of these places were constructed or designed in the 19th century, um, including a lot of those buildings. Uh, We wanted to ask you basically, in a nutshell, why are they still around? How is it that we're still able to see the village uh, of the late 19th century today? 
Well, uh, one of the main reasons is because the neighborhood fought really, really hard to preserve and protect its history, its incredibly unique and charming architecture. And that really culminated in the 1960s in the designation of the Greenwich Village Historic District in 1969, although there were a couple of little historic districts designated before that, McDougal Sullivan Gardens, Charlton King Van Dam. Um, in later years, organizations like ours have fought to get those landmark protections expanded, so a lot more of the neighborhood is now protected by landmark designation. Even before that, people in the neighborhood fought really hard to preserve and protect the architecture and the history, but before landmarking existed in the 1960s, it wasn't so easy to do, and they were usually not successful. And we've talked about, you know, the the efforts of Jane Jacobs. Um, of course, there's Margot Gale, mm-hmm. who in 1960 would be, you know, starting an effort to save the Jefferson Market Courthouse, which is today's library. And and these people we see today as also early activists mm-hmm. in the neighborhood. A neighborhood that Greg has just been talking about was full of activists, political activists, artists, and is it? that village spirit of activism that saved the neighborhood from demolition? I mean, did did that level of activism translate into preservationists? Absolutely. The neighborhood has always been full of people who've kind of gone against the grain, gone against the grid, fought for things that they believed in that were outside of the mainstream. Preservation is just one of those many things. Uh, you know, I like to say it's kind of in the DNA of villagers. They're always up for a fight. They're always up for a challenge. They sort of see themselves as this kind of little tiny outpost uh, against this sort of broader massive city that would seek to encroach upon it. So definitely it was not just an accident. It was not just happenstance. It was people who fought really, really hard to get those protections in place. Otherwise, they never would have happened. I mean, think about it. You're in between Midtown and the financial district. There are many, many interests that would love to see something like Greenwich Village just become an extension of those two huge business districts, and it hasn't. And that's largely because of the efforts of these activists from the 1960s and before and after. Although in the 50s, there there was a lot of development happening, uh, even the 1961 zoning law change, too, that that allowed for some really big residential developments um, Absolutely. that replaced yeah. smaller structures. Sure. Yeah, there was both a Robert Moses urban renewal south of uh, Washington Square. He hoped to do it along the Greenwich Village waterfront as well, but was thwarted there. And then there was just a lot of individual private uh, development. The 1961 rezoning reigned that in a little bit, but didn't entirely eliminate it. Um, and in fact, ironically, the passage of the 61 rezoning created a boom of people trying to get their developments in under the wire before the new zoning took effect. So there's a ton of buildings in Greenwich Village and other neighborhoods from 1961 um, that were just under the wire in terms of uh, conforming with the old zoning. So you have Jacobs um, coming out with the book in 61. You have Penn Station demolished in 63. You have landmarks, uh, the Landmarks Act really going into effect in 65. And it's at that same time in 65 that Greenwich Village is grappling with how to preserve itself as a whole. Right. Yeah. And, and they're looking over at Brooklyn Heights. That's right. That's right. Yeah, Brooklyn Heights and Greenwich Village were really the two neighborhoods that were kind of thought of first in terms of uh, neighborhood historic districts. Uh, Brooklyn Heights happened much more quickly. It, it, it was a big fight uh, as well. But in some ways, because Brooklyn Heights was more intact and had clearer boundaries, it was a little bit easier to do. The battle over what would and wouldn't be landmarked in Greenwich Village went on for years. And at some 
some point the city came out with this proposal for 18 different little mini districts as opposed to the one large one which was designated and even the one large one left out a lot um, we've had a, a lot of work over the last couple of decades to try to get that extended to areas that were missed then but the 18 little ones would have missed even more yeah, how was it, or what was the thought process by those things that were added to the district, right? I mean, what were the criteria when they finally, you know, looked through this whole huge neighborhood and decided which is important, which deserves to be in this new proposed district? I mean, what were some of the criteria? Well, how how yeah. are the boundaries formed? Yeah. yeah. You know, that's a really good question because, and nobody knows the answer to that. <laughs> and if you look at the boundaries of the original Greenwich Village Historic District, they're kind of crazy. Um, and couple blocks north and south of the park is that it and and then west uh you can't even describe the shape because it doesn't <laughs> there, there's no shape name that that would aptly describe what it looks like you can only just look at the map and see the way that it zigs and zags uh, around i mean there's a, a few things that you can point to that seem to be part of the logic for better or worse but there's a lot of things that you'll look at where you'll say why was that in? And then right across the street, why was that out? I mean, one of the more sort of glaring examples is um, between 8th and 9th Street, the Brevort and the Brevort East, which are these two huge apartment buildings, the later of which was built in the early 1960s, are not exactly what you would call historic. And in fact, some very historic buildings were demolished to make way for them. But they're in the south easternmost block of the district, so they drew the lines purposely to include it. That said, right across the street on University Place are some beautiful 19th century buildings and early 20th century classic pre-war apartment buildings that were carved out of the district. So it's hard to know in some cases what the logic was. One thing that's clear is that they did not want to go south of Washington Square um, for two reasons. One is probably NYU. Uh, the other is because that neighborhood south of Washington Square, McDougal, Sullivan, Thompson, which a lot, and a big chunk of Bleecker Street, which a lot of people consider the heart of Greenwich Village, was back then still the sort of more gritty and more immigranty Italian-American part of the neighborhood. And its architecture and its culture wasn't considered as preservation-worthy as other parts of the neighborhood. And now, some of those blocks still exist today. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And in fact, in, uh, in the early 2000s and the early part of this decade, we managed to get the landmark protections extended to those areas. So they are now landmarks. But there was a 40-year gap where they were not. Some things were lost. Others, fortunately, were not. But uh, it was very clear that that was one of the lines that the city drew. They didn't like tenements. They were much more interested in the townhouses. And in fact, if you look at the 18 little districts, those were drawn almost exclusively to just get the side street townhouses and leave everything else out. And how does this factor in then with the story of Moses and the construction of the giant apartment blocks south of Washington Square? The, f the first uh, phase of that, which is Washington Square Village, had already happened. Those went up in the 1950s, um, where you now have uh, what's called Silver, Silver Towers or University Village. Those sites had been demolished and cleared, but the building didn't start until the late 1960s. Um, that complex opened in 67, I believe. So there was already nothing there by the time landmarking took effect, um, but the, the final phase of it didn't go up until uh, 67. 
So the late 50s saw the, the construction of Washington Square Village, a lot of Robert Moses activity south of the park. Um, and, but during the 60s, during this whole show that Greg and I have been talking about here with these different populations who are all in the village and thriving and transforming the village, um, there is this other preservation battle that's taking place. And there's also construction happening all around these people, sure. which is kind of fun to think about. But one of the big players was NYU mm-hmm. as well. And NYU has been involved in preservation efforts and perhaps scuttling <laughs> some as well. Non-preservation, non-preservation efforts. I mean, it's odd to think of, you know, the location of the university is part of the reason that it became a bohemian center to begin with. It was one factor in that. And then, but then if you were to tell, talk to anyone in the 1960s, they would have a very different opinion of NYU. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, NYU giveth and NYU taketh away. I mean, you know, the the presence of the university obviously has had a huge impact on the neighborhood, and part of it is that there's, you know, tons of college students, and it's added to the cultural vitality of the neighborhood. That said, the decision makers at the university have tended to have a pretty insensitive attitude towards the neighborhood's history and architecture and character, and they've been, and a lot of these great uh, preservation battles have been about the community versus NYU. So, so the Greenwich Village Historic District is granted designation status in 69. And, and, and this organization came into being in 1980. Mm-hmm. How did that happen? Sure. Uh, the organization was founded in 1980, and it was originally just a kind of small volunteer-based organization that was really meant to be kind of a, a caretaker for the Greenwich Village Historic District. So our focus was was very narrow. And it's interesting to see um, some of the uh, newsletters from that time. One of the things that they were uh, worried about was decay and deterioration, which is not a term you really apply to Greenwich Village much these days. <laughs> Things have changed, not only here, but in a lot of other places in New York. Um, But over the years, you know, we became a a fully staffed organization. We expanded our scope beyond the Greenwich Village Historic District, beyond even Greenwich Village, to the East Village, NoHo, the Meatpacking District, and beyond strictly historic preservation, meaning architecture and buildings, to kind of a broader cultural preservation, small businesses, theaters, arts groups, you know, the, the histories and stories of the people who were involved in the neighborhood through our oral history projects. Although this year, uh, 2019, is a major anniversary uh, that you're celebrating, even if it's not your organization's anniversary, it's one that is central to the mission of your organization. Absolutely, near and dear to our heart, which is the 50th anniversary this year of the Greenwich Village Historic District's designation, designated April 29th, 1969. So uh, two weeks before that, the weekend of April 13th and 14th, uh, on Saturday from noon to three, we're having a big celebration in Washington Square Park, lots of performers, inspiring speakers. And then throughout that weekend, with about 60 or so partners, we're going to have a series of tours, open houses, uh, special business promotions, all sorts of things going on all throughout the district that you can participate in as a way of really enjoying, engaging with, and celebrating all that is incredible within the Greenwich Village Historic District. We are so there. Yes. Well, we want to thank you for joining us for the interview, but we also want to thank your organization for doing this extraordinary job of preserving the village that we then we get to talk about often so yeah and 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 I, i spend many of my days working in the jefferson market library thank you so much 
We want to thank Andrew for joining us on this very special show, and we hope that you check out their website for more information on the celebration of the 50th anniversary of the Historic District. That's gvshp.org, the Greenwich Village Society for Historic Preservation. Now, on our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, there will be a wonderful array of photographs and videos documenting life in Greenwich Village in the 1960s. A huge thanks, as always, to our patrons who support us with small monthly contributions. Because of this, Greg and I are able to devote our time to making the Bowery Boys. We could not do this without your support. Tom, last episode, we uh, started a new tradition of reading the names of some of those people who support us on Patreon. Do you have another list? I do. First names and last initial to keep it mysterious. We'd like to thank Christina H., Vincent P., Suzette A., Sim and Marlis A., Nicole L., Aaron E., Allegra S., Atul L., Connor W., Daniel P., Allison B., Amber June, R.E.L., Barbara H., Jennifer B., Josiah W., Karen J., C.C.B., Gordon H., and Irene L. So thank you for supporting us on Patreon. And if you need any more incentive to join us there, we are pleased to present a very special bonus to our listeners, and one that's in honor of the 50th anniversary of the creation of the Greenwich Village Historic District. We're offering an audio walking tour of Washington Square Park. Now, this is a newly edited, newly revised version of a tour that you can actually purchase. But this new version will be an exclusive just for our supporters. And the walking tour is you. Yes. Uh huh. Leading, leading your own little walk through Washington Square Park. Yeah, it's about an hour long. Just pop in your headphones and you're ready to go. And I'll tell you where to go. <laughs> so we have that bonus walking tour just for you as a way to say thank you. Yes, and that will be available to all those who support the Bowery Boys at the $5 level and above. So that's patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. So again, congratulations to Greenwich Village on 50 years of historic preservation. And thank you so much for taking a stroll through the village with us today. Thank you for listening and have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.